Welcome everyone to another episode of the DCL Duo podcast. And tonight, Sam and I are super excited to welcome Seth Kaberski to the show. Seth is the co-author of The Unofficial Guide to Disneyland. And uh, we're really excited to talk to Seth because if there's anyone who is an expert about Disneyland, it is going to be Seth. So yeah, I think Seth is a real Disneyland celebrity in our book. (laughs) Wow. I I don't get called a celebrity often. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're pretty excited to have you on, Seth. So you said you're in Orlando. So really, really interesting. I want to understand how you got roped into writing a guide about Disneyland all the way from Orlando. But why don't we start with just what's your general Disney background? Sure. Well, I, I will confess right up front, I have never worked for the Disney company, but I have been uh, low-key, maybe high-key obsessed with Disney since uh, I was a little kid. I actually recently uh, wrote a little uh, blog post about my my Disney history and dug up some pictures from when I was about four years old on my first trip to Walt Disney World. Oh, uh, I wow. grew up in... Grew up in New Jersey and, you know, we're a middle class family. So a trip, a vacation to Disney World was a really big deal back in the, you know, mid late 70s, early 80s. So about once every four years, got to take a trip with my family down to Disney World. And that first trip kind of barely remember those first couple trips in the late 70s before Epcot was open. But I definitely remember, you know, visiting Epcot in those first year or so before Horizons and Living Seas were even open and uh, just being amazed by stuff like the original Journey into Imagination. And then by the time I got into high school and they were building Disney's MGM Studios, I kind of got a little deeply obsessed with the art of creating theme parks. I was a theater kid and kind of the the way that theme parks mixed theater and film and uh, stagecraft and magic and all these all these different genres of art was something that really interested me. I discovered this book in the reference section of my library called Walt Disney's Epcot. It's this big coffee table book that was published when Epcot first opened. And uh, it was all about the Imagineering and the scale models and things like Africa that never got built. And I think that kind of sparked uh, a lifelong interest in Disney and books about Disney. Did you want to be an Imagineer when you grew up? I don't know that I ever thought I would be creative or talented, especially in terms of of drawing to be an Imagineer, but I wanted to be around that world. You know, I I liked writing and, and I liked theater. And so I went to college for theater. And straight out of college, I, I actually was went to school at the College of William, William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. And so I worked for Bush Garden of Williamsburg during the summers and figured, well, if I'm going to work for a theme park, I might as well work for the best one. So packed everything I had in a trunk right after in a truck right after graduation and drove down to Orlando without having an apartment or a job or anything. Wow. And found a little place, literally moved into a place on 192 in Kissimmee because I read in the unofficial guide that that Kissimmee was actually the closest city to Walt Disney World, not Orlando. We didn't really do internet research back then in the dial-up era. So I just drove down following a map and and started calling Disney, turned up at casting. And the funny thing is I really wanted to, I thought with my theater degree, I could get a job working on one of the shows at Disney. And they were happy to interview me and then have a second interview and then a third interview. And the meanwhile, I, I needed money. So I drove over to Universal. Uh, and I had been to Universal once or twice before on vacations. And uh, I thought some of their technology was really cool when it worked. But I wouldn't say I was as big a fan uh, of Universal as I was Disney at the time. But Universal looked at my resume and made me took a little quiz and hired me on the spot. And wow. uh, and I ended up spending almost four years at Universal and, and never, ever worked for Disney. So clearly you've you've been to the parks in Florida, California. Have you visited the other parks overseas? My dream is uh, for my next big milestone birthday to visit the Asian parks. I have not done that, but I did spend almost a month in Europe and made sure to visit Disneyland Paris there 
and and the one thing I would say is I spent spent two full days plus a couple partial days at Disneyland Paris, and I wish I'd spent more time at the real Paris rather than the <laughs> Disneyland Paris. There are some wonderful things about that Disneyland Paris park. I don't have a lot of great things to say about the studios park there. Hopefully that'll change in the next decade or so. What fascinates me about Disneyland Paris is I've heard quite a few people come back with the review that is very similar to what you're saying, but with the addition of the food wasn't great, which is what they were sort of it expecting was, it to it, be phenomenal. I right? had I had a a couple check please moments at Disneyland Paris restaurants. My favorite being the one where we observed in the buffet restaurant that's kind of their equivalent of the Crystal Palace, the right off of the plaza in, in the hub. Watching a busboy take big handfuls of clean silverware, accidentally drop them all over the floor, carefully pick them all up and then place them out on a table. No, oh God. <laughs> I would. I don't know that I would but, ever eat there again. <laughs> but I, I will say I would go back just to see their Phantom Manor again, especially now that it's been renovated. The oh. the unique rides that they have there, their Phantom Manor, their their pirates, worth going through all of the crud. <laughs> the, <laughs> crud, crud is the best word that I can use, uh, <laughs> especially if you visit another European park like Efteling and see that that they're capable in Europe of having Disney quality standards in terms of upkeep and customer service and food quality and all that stuff we expect from the, from the American Disney parks. The Europeans are perfectly capable of doing it. They're just not doing it at Disneyland Paris. Wow. What, and, and so being a, a podcast with DCL and its name, I'm also curious if you have much experience with the, the, the cruise line at all. I wish I had more. I've been on, I think we've done five Disney cruises now. Uh, a couple of them, courtesy of touring plans. We can get talk a little bit more about Len and touring plans later. We've done the magic a couple times. We kind of feel like the magic is our home boat because we did a transatlantic from Barcelona to Miami on the magic. And that was kind of the best 11 days. I think that was 11 days. You know, five five solid days at sea with no ports to have to feel obligated to get off the boat and go to. You know, it's it was a really incredible experience. And we've also done the dream and the fantasy. And frankly, I prefer the smaller, more intimate boats, um, even though there's some great features on the bigger ones. Have not done the wonder. My dream is to do a Alaska cruise on the wonder once those are happening again. Well, let's shift gears. Let's let's talk about the, the reason you're here. Co-author of The Unofficial Guide. I, I also, I think you're the co-author of The Unofficial Guide for Universal Studios. Is that right? Yeah. So I'm actually on, I think, four of our books now. So Unofficial Guide to Disneyland, I am the lead co-author. The foundation, obviously, of all of the unofficial guides was laid by Bob Selinger going back to the 80s. He invented the idea of a guide to a Disney park that wasn't filtered through Disney, that wasn't just repeating what Disney had to say. Like literally no one, no one did that because everyone was scared to like, right. you didn't know if you had the right to talk about Disney without Disney's permission in that way. And Bob was the one who proved, you know, legally, <laughs> yes, absolutely right. legally you, can. you can. And we're going to do it. Well, um, the and podcasts then, that exist now and like ours wouldn't exist if not for him sort of taking that on years and years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine now because we just accept that anyone can be an authority on the theme parks. All they need is an iPhone and a YouTube account. <laughs> uh, and, and you are an expert. Congratulations. But there, there was a time, you know, for the first 10, you know, almost 15 years that Disney exists, there was Disney's official guide published by Birnbaum. And that was it. Like, you might get the occasional newspaper article. And we had the early days of Usenet or Rec Arts Disney text-based news groups where fans would share information, but it was all kind of murky. And it, it wasn't something that was done. It all came from Bob having a miserable vacation at Disney with his kids when they were little. The Magic Kingdom, no one knew about rope drop. No one knew about queuing strategies or anything. So he just took his kids to the park and went and showed up and tried to buy a ticket and get to the park and go on the rides. And it was just 
it was awful. And he was like, well, there's got to be a better way to do it. And uh, and he figured it out and wrote a book about it. And then about a decade before me, uh, he joined up with Len Testa, who was a, a computer scientist, who I believe did his university research based on queuing strategies and how taking this concept that Bob did manually, you know, for years, the touring plans, the idea of what ride you go to and what order to be the most efficient trip through the park in the least wait in time. I was all done manually just by having armies of people doing every possible combination and timing it and doing it over and over again. And, wow. uh, and Len figured out the way to crunch those numbers with a database, which is now the, the touringplans.com empire. Mm-hmm. And, and then I got into it a little over 10 years ago. I met Bob Selinger at the grand opening of the Wizarding World of Harry Potter in Hogsmeade, Islands of Adventure. I write for a local newspaper, the Orlando Weekly, and I guess he got invited down on a press invite and we had sushi and hit it off. And the next thing I knew, he was asking me uh, if I was interested in writing for his book series. And we we kind of had a friend in common, Jim Hill, very early in my my career, kind of, I went from being a fan and a former theme park employee to being a, a theme park journalist uh, mm-hmm. in, in a large part because of Jim Hill. The early days of the jimhillmedia.com website, well, long before that he had a podcast or the Disney Dish, he had a, a website and I started commenting on his website and he liked my comments and asked me to write some articles. Oh, wow. uh, and those articles got noticed by a book publisher called the Intrepid Traveler, which I Mm-hmm. don't think is currently functioning, but they had a book series about uh, Universal and Jim introduced me to to them and that kind of all steamrolled. And uh, so before I was writing for the unofficial guides, I was writing for a different book series about Universal and SeaWorld and Busch Gardens and those kind of parks. Um, and then I, I met up with, with Bob and we hit it off. That was 2010. And he needed help with the Disneyland book. And I will be frank that at that time, I had visited Disneyland a couple times and really liked the park, but I was not a Disneyland expert. So, you know, I wound up taking over the book in, for the 2012 edition. So um, starting in around uh, the summer of 2010, I kind of dove into Disneyland and put in a whole lot of trips and became an annual pass holder. I actually, back then you were able, if you had a annual pass to Walt Disney World and you bought like a five-day park hopper at Disneyland, if you took those to guest services, they had just come out with the Bicoastal Gold Pass. Uh, I think it's now oh, called yeah. the Premier oh, Pass. Yeah. It was brand new. Yeah. And if you took them a Walt Disney World annual pass and like a five-day park hopper to Disneyland and gave them 12 extra bucks, they would give you <laughs> a Bicoastal Pass good for 12 months from that date. Wow. You know, not, not, even, not even just to the end of when you're... And it was... AP, and yeah. I managed... Before they closed that loophole, I managed to do that for like three years. I don't know how their accountants let... Now Now it's ridiculously expensive. Now, well, um, now you'd have to now you'd have to take them the uh, Walt Disney World Pass, your five-day park hopper, and $1,200 to get the... Right. <laughs> <take> the <laughs> and, and, and maybe your firstborn child. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you've mentioned a bunch of, you know, celebrities in the Disney community that you get to work with, uh, Jim... <laughs> And Bob, what's it like working with these people? I mean, they're sort of revered. I I have nothing bad to say about any of them. And they're they're not I mean, they don't act like but Bob, you know, Bob and I, we we do the Las Vegas guide together also. And we, we've been doing that for, for quite a few years. And we go out and share a hotel suite in Vegas for a week every year. <laughs> um, and and it, Bob, Bob's just an ordinary guy, even though he started this whole empire. He's just a guy who likes to sit and, and drink a, a glass of bourbon and watch the airplanes land at Karen Airport. It's, you know, <laughs> um, you know, Len is kind of interesting to be around because he uh, is kind of larger than life and he attracts crowds. I can remember doing a, a thing at the Mexican restaurant and not the one inside the pyramid, but with the, the one right, oh, on the one the right water. outside. Yeah. And, and just having like the entire restaurant full of people and him just 
he's buying drinks for the entire restaurant for you know <laughs> wow. just like a hundred people. And I've known Jim for so long and his wife and his family that you know he's almost like a, a, a honorary uncle or something. So yeah, I mean they are definitely celebrities to uh, people who listen to you know podcasts and follow them. But they're you know they're they're the folks that I, I get to work with. So. <laughs> Focusing on the, the the guide for a second, I I had lots of questions because I, I you know the first few times I read this, and I remember by the way, I feel like my father would buy these every year when I was a kid. <laughs> Can I tell you plan our that, plan our Disney trip? So I in my family, my parents were not like they 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 were did the saving you know the working for, for the money to saving the money uh-huh. to get the plane tickets and the, and the hotel rooms, but they were not into the, you know, it was just sort of like, wake up this morning, where, sh- where should we go? Mm-hmm. And so I was the one who in my, I, my library discovered, you know, one of the very early editions, probably around 89 or so of, of the unofficial guide, maybe even earlier than that, just probably 86 or so. And, you know, I would take the books and I would come up with touring plans for years that I knew there was no chance whatsoever of me going to Disney. There was no prayer of us being able to afford a vacation, but I would work out a five-day itinerary of where we oh should stay gosh. and down to what restaurant we should eat at at what time. I mean, and this was before you could do this on a computer. Yeah. So, you know, like there was no automated database. So I had my word processor on my Apple IIc back then. You know? <laughs> I love that you yeah. did this, Seth, because I did this as a teenager in the mid-90s mm-hmm. when we were planning my second trip to a Disney park in my entire life. And I was planning it for my 16th birthday. My best friend and I were planning and both of our families, we were going to, we went to Disney World and we totally bought the unofficial guide back then. This was yep. probably 95, I think, because we went in 96 and we, the, the two of us planned out the entire trip. So I planned the itinerary for every day, I planned what restaurants we were going to, planned at least a loose itinerary for the attractions. I was totally into it. My parents could care less about what what we did each day, they would have just shown up in the morning and been like, okay, which were, where are we going today? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the first time that I tried, I got so many eye rolls, but I do remember, <laughs> you know, I remember the, the very first year that we actually did go and take a trip and I was able to like plan out one of these itineraries and getting a lot of friction, especially from my dad in arguments mm-hmm. about why, why do we have to do it? And then the first time that we went to Epcot and traditionally for us, Epcot was a two day park that we still didn't finish, you know, and remember getting through everything in future world by lunchtime. And him being okay, <laughs> maybe it works. <laughs> you, you're probably, you're probably like you got a career in this kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned earlier that this was sort of a an exercise here in understanding what could be done and sort of commenting on Disney, right? And it has bred the unofficial guides, touring plans, the plethora of podcasts, other websites that are out there. It has almost been to Disney's benefit. It has fed this culture of planning to go to the parks that I think almost builds the anticipation, which is exactly what Disney wants, right? They they want you to have this experience and back and forth with the park, planning it, getting excited about it, like all that. So it's, it's fascinating that, that it all was sort of born of, I'm having a bad experience in the park and I need to figure this out better. But that, that, that the experience now is people plan these vacations as a way to stay connected to the next vacation they're taking. Right. So, you know, and and the the growth of the third party businesses around Disney in a virtual space, it's it's almost like, you know, the original Disneyland was built and it was surrounded by all these orange trees. And then in the 50s and the 60s, all these mom and pop restaurants and tacky souvenir stands and all that stuff kind of grew up around Mm -hmm. Disneyland. And that, you know, that's almost kind of a metaphor what's happened in the the virtual space uh, in terms of people commenting on and vlogging logging on and coming up with Etsy stores based on. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. As long as it doesn't infringe too much on copyright, in which case right. uh, your store will get sued. They, they have demonstrated. Yeah. No, but it's 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 also kind of fascinating to watch how when, when Disney came to Florida, they famously bought up so much land so that they control everything that happened around. And that 
it's not just physical, but in terms of media, they for so long kind of controlled the narrative. I got to meet Charlie Ridgway, who was Walt Disney's original publicist. He started Disneyland and he came to Walt Disney World. And every famous photo you've ever seen of Walt, either at Disneyland with Mickey Mouse or the early years of Walt Disney World, that was all staged by Charlie. Uh, he, he was the genius of, of Disney's promotion. He was the reason that for the longest time, Disney never paid for an ad. He, Disney got newspapers, big newspapers, New York Times, Time, Time Magazine, whatever, to Life Magazine, put them on the cover and write these big stories about them, basically serve as advertising for Disney and always kind of towing the Disney line. None of those articles back in the in the 70s and the 80s were ever negative. And, and when the Orlando Sentinel was a small newspaper and they tried to write stuff about how buzzards at Discovery Island were being slaughtered and they were an endangered species, Charlie went full nuclear on the newspapers and tried to you know control the narrative only have disney's uh word out there and how over my lifetime or my career that's completely flipped upside down and now disney is all about yeah let's grow the grassroots let's invite the bloggers to come to the grand opening of a ride and disney has become so good at stoking the fires of their fandom they have to watch out though because sometimes like you stoke that too hot and then you make a change and all of those you know all of those Burning hot fanboys come and turn right back in your face because they don't like something that you did. When you get people so emotionally invested in your product and then you make a change to your product that people perceive negatively, even if it's not necessarily negative, you, you sometimes reap what you sow. I wonder if there is going to be, well, I'm sure we can all see some big changes coming once they were, once everybody's able to reopen post-pandemic. But I do think we're going to see a lot of reaction, whether it be negative or positive. I'm sure there will be a lot of negative out there to whatever, you know, whatever protections Disney either has to or decides to put in place in Disneyland and Walt Disney World. All I will say about this is that my thoughts and prayers are with Disney's frontline PR people and anyone who has to communicate <laughs> yes. with the public, because from the articles and blog posts that I've been writing recently regarding the situation, everyone thinks either the uh, you know plans for reopening are way too restrictive and a violation of their rights and horrible and they would never go to the park or not nearly restrictive enough and risking everyone's life and safety and they would never go to the park. I have not seen anyone say, this seems reasonable and balanced and they're making a, a no matter what the options that are out there, everyone hates it from one direction or another and hmm. they can only get squished in the middle. The guide itself, what's the process for writing it, Seth? And, and um, you know, you're making updates to a base that exists, but what yeah. what is that process like? It sounds like from a comment you made earlier, it starts almost a year and a half in, it, in advance. It's it is it's a year long cycle that kind of traditionally right now this year we're in a little bit of a holding pattern and I, I can't go into any more specifics. We are working on putting out a book, but we want to make sure that the book we put out isn't you know out of date a week after we put it out. <laughs> so um, as soon as we have a more firm idea of what the future, as in the next six to eighteen months, holds, then we'll be we'll be getting that out there. But traditionally, I write a manuscript, which is a, a revision of the previous year's books. And it, typically about 20% of the text gets rewritten every year, sometimes more, sometimes less. Obviously, you've got whatever new attractions or new restaurants have come to the park, anything new that's being added within that year. And then we also go through every description of every ride, every description of every restaurant, and make sure, is this still accurate? Is this still relevant? Is there a better way that I can say this? The most important resource for us in updating our books is our reader feedback. We get emails every single week, sometimes every day. And also people fill out surveys on touringplans.com. And we get that feedback too. And we 
definitely use all of that to inform the updates that go into our book. We, we quote pretty extensively from people who write into us. And sometimes people write on it and say, I don't think you did a good job. I think this <laughs> advice was bad. And we're the only guy. Disney, Disney fans are Disney fans are critical. I don't believe you for a second. You wouldn't, you, <laughs> can you imagine? No, I mean, pe- people sometimes complain um, and say that, hey, I, th- I think I have a better way. And we're the only guidebook that I think I know of that will literally quote and say, this reader wrote in to tol- tell us that we have it wrong. And he w- here was their opinion. And we will say up front, we're human and Disney changes every single day. You know, the Disneyland that you go to uh, a month ago is not the Disneyland that you went to three months ago because the people working there change, policies change, e- even food changes depending on who's cooking it. So, you know, these are... These are uh, my opinions and the opinions of the people we work with, but it's also the opinions of our readers. And our job is to give you all of the information and let you make up your own mind. We'll tell you flat out if we think something is bad or good and why we think it's bad or good, but ultimately it's your vacation. Go for it. You do you. It sounds like a lot of it is you, and then you've got listening systems with the readers, but what are you constantly sending people into the park, visiting it yourself? What's the strategy to get out there and see what's changing and in, in for yourself? Um, thank God for the internet. I can stay really up to date on what's happening in there virtually. First of all, a hat tip to Guy Selga, who is also one of our co-authors, and he lives uh, out there. He blogs a lot on touring plans, and uh, he is kind of our day-to-day boots on the ground. And we have other friends who are out in California who help us out. And then I take multiple trips for at least a week at a time throughout the year. I was actually just supposed to be getting back yesterday from uh, a week out there. And unfortunately, that trip got canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, the most recent time I was out there was for the Oogie Boogie Halloween party at DCA. So this is now the longest that I've gone without being at Disneyland in about 10 years. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. As soon as those gates, as soon as they announce the, that reopening, I'm, I'm going to be planning my trip. How recognizable are you and the rest of the crew in the park? And do you feel like that, that there's any sort of like Disney catering to you in a way to try to get I, a good I, reaction? I can guarantee, especially in Disneyland, uh, Disney World, I get recognized by cast members, mainly in entertainment or, or some frontline ride operators, just because I've, I've been in town for so long and I've worked with a lot of people, uh, especially in entertainment. But I, re- I don't get preferential treatment. I will say at Universal, I get recognized more often, but I'm usually recognized as Steven Spielberg. I get that. <laughs> I get that a disturbing, disturbing amount of time. And, and I just, I always want to say, do you think Steven Spielberg would, would be walking around without a VIP tour host? <laughs> uh, no. no. Would, but That's... it's, it's because we have similar beards and noses and both wear bald ca- ball caps uh, a lot. So <laughs> what are you going to do? That's hilarious. Um, that would be amazing if you were in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, by the way. Like I can yeah, only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Disneyland, I, I got to say, I don't think I've, I've ever received any preferential treatment, especially, yeah, no. I know, uh, say, Jim Hill has been recognized in the past and, and escorted out of the park, uh, <laughs> at least on one occasion. Um, and I, know, I know they know Lynn in certain spots, especially La Cava de Tequila, because they've got his name <laughs> on one of the glasses on the behind the bar but no i'm i'm lucky enough to just not be uh i don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm not that memorable or whatever but or, or that they maybe they recognize me and deliberately don't give me special treatment that's possible too i think i mean i actually think for for your research purposes it's probably better that they don't give you preferential treatment and I, I will say with disney we do not go to any media events you know we're, we don't we pay our our tickets for everything we do we we but we buy our own annual passes. We don't get uh, comped. We don't get freebies from from Disney. There have there been times in the past where I went to Universal Media events, but I always would then go back as a regular paying guest and never base a review of a ride on you know getting to experience it 
without any weights. Because if the, the media who got to experience Rise of the Resistance at a party with a lot of celebrities and just got to walk on had a much different experience than the people who had to get up at, at 4 a.m. to try to get a boarding pass. Right. Uh, or who so, had the ride break down 12 times during the day and they didn't end up getting on at all. Right. So, yeah, it's really important. It's fundamental to what Unofficial Guide does was that even if we were recognized, even if we did get invited to some media event, that what we write in our books is always based on our experience as an average paying guest who's waiting in line with everyone else. What's the goal of the guide? The goal is is simply to help the reader, the consumer, the person that we serve get the most out of their time and money on their Disney vacation. Disney is a fantastic experience, but it's also really expensive. It's really stressful. And it's probably more preparatory work than any other kind of vacation that I can imagine. And so our job is to reduce those friction points or at least warn you about them mm-hmm. and help you, you know, for the cost of the book, which is less than you're going to spend on lunch in the park, mm-hmm. you're hopefully improving the experience that you've spent several thousand dollars on several fold. It's a, it should be a pretty good investment. You're spending like one tenth of one percent of your vacation. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think I think if you compare a trip to Disney World or Disneyland with planning versus one without planning. I mean, you're just going to have a vastly different experience. And the experience is going to be much greater, in my opinion, with at least a little bit of planning on your own, you know, by using one of the unofficial guides or one of those kinds of resources like touring plans. Can I can I quote you on that? The check is in the mail. Yes, absolutely. I mean, some people, some people do it with a travel agent that can help them with an itinerary. Some people do it on their own with an unofficial guide or use touring plans or both. Um, Brian and I have really done the work. I would say should really say Brian has really done the work for most of our trips with the unofficial guide and with touring plans. That's what he usually does. We've used a travel agent for a couple of our cruises, but for our park visits, we've really done the planning ourselves. And I, I see the benefit of a travel agent in addition to these things, because I do think you really really need to educate yourself in order to understand what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, all of these things. And if you, it's a knowledge is power. If you don't have all the information at your fingertips, it's really, really hard to make decisions. Yeah, we have, uh, we talk a lot about travel agents and we, we highly recommend them. We have a few in the book that we really uh, support because especially if, if you're talking about doing airfare, doing, doing hotels, you can really protect yourself both in terms of price and in terms of if something goes wrong, having someone who's there on your side. Because while a great Disney vacation can be better than any other kind of vacation, a really bad Disney vacation is a special kind of miserable. You know, our Walt Disney World book, I think, is at least 50% longer than our Disneyland book. And that's not just because that's not because there's more attractions. Because if you just count the pure number of rides and shows, there's the same number at Disneyland's two parks as there are Walt Disney World's four parks. Oh, wow. uh, it's that things like Fast Pass, you know, ADRs, it transportation system at Walt Disney World is just so massive. Uh, It's so complicated. It's exhausting. It's exhausting even me to to think about. And I'm I'm one of the contributors to the Walt Disney World book. Yeah, we totally Um, agree. (laughs) And, you know, Disneyland has definitely gotten more complicated over the years. But if you especially if you leverage MaxPass, right? I think MaxPass is the greatest Mm -hmm. thing that happened to Disneyland in the last 10 years. Disneyland can still be a really uh, magical experience, but you got to know what you're getting into ahead of time. If you just show up at the gate and grab a map and they're like, oh, I wonder what attractions are in this park, you're kind of going to be lost. You're not going to get your money's worth out of that ticket. As you make changes to the guide, how do you balance out what you're going to include versus not? And I'll I'll give you a concrete example. As I think about Star Wars Galaxy's Edge opened. It has this boarding pass concept, unclear about how long they're going to maintain that process or not, I think, right? And so do you, do you say, well, we need to put something in the guide about boarding passes to help people understand what it is? Or do you say, geez, if we put it in there and then they wipe it off the face of the earth before the guide gets published? like You you are describing my life. The so, so just to give you a little bit of behind the scenes, I write the first draft of the new book every year and is has to be finished by April 15th, typically. And the uh, final draft with all of the final revisions are typically due on June 15th. Now, June 15th was real close to the official opening of Galaxy's Edge. 
at Disneyland this past year. Uh, so we managed by you know jumping through a whole bunch of hoops to push that all the way back to July 1st. But that still was not a lot of time. So between the first day of soft openings for Galaxy's Edge to the grand opening day, which I was there for. I was there for the first day of Sobnung's grand opening day, and I was there, I think, 12 days in between. And I flew home for a few days and then went back out and just watching the, the, the boarding groups and watching the system, watching the flow, and then had to put in the final manuscript. So it was a complete description of the way that the boarding pass system worked for Galaxy's Edge on opening weekend and had to send it off to the printer. And then within 48 hours, they never used the boarding pass system again. But yeah, so um, a similar situation this year, you know, the boarding pass system, I expect, I expect virtual queues to become even more popular. I know that, you know, the boarding pass system for Rise of the Resistance has been extremely controversial, to say the least. And a lot of people were looking forward to that being phased out. I think that in the new normal that we're going to have for at least the next year or two, that we're going to see more virtual queuing systems and not less. No, I, I agree. I think it makes a lot of sense. And as much as there's been controversy with the uh, boarding pass system for Rise, I think I actually prefer that method because it means I can go do something else rather than waiting in line for two hours. So, yeah. I think I think the most important thing in any kind of system like that is the perception of fairness. You know, people, people hate the idea of, well, I, I followed all the rules and I didn't get it. Why did this person standing next to me get it? And, you know, obviously, whenever you have a scarce resource that has to be distributed, some people are going to be losers and some people are going to be winners. I wonder if a system like they have in Japan, you know, they have they have shows in Japan that are so popular that they use a lottery system. It basically is like you put your ticket in and it's like, congratulations, today's your day or nope, sorry. But, you know, right then and there. You know, you, you know, and the person right behind you, they might they might get it and you didn't. But at least uh, you're not sitting around to find out if your backup boarding group is actually going to get called or not. Yeah, the, fa- the fairness point is a good one, because I think what's interesting to me is to your I think to the point you're making, we've we've done the boarding group thing, both at Disney World and Disneyland. It's actually harder for us at Disneyland at Disney World. We were able to get boarding groups kind of no problem. And actually, I think some fairly early boarding groups at Disneyland. I think we were out of luck or in backup boarding groups nearly every time, if not every time that we've tried to get one. And it is this sort of perception of why, like, why is this dependent upon my cell phone carrier or my Wi-Fi connection or where I'm standing in the park as opposed to, yeah, just throw everyone in a lottery. And then, you know, if your number gets called, your number gets called. That that feels, to, to your point, that feels fair. I worry Disney will pivot a different direction and start to somehow sell access to some of these uh, nicer rides, right? Or these newer rides sort of say like, hey, if you're willing to spend X amount of money, we'll give you some sort of specialized fast pass for that ride, right? To guarantee you can get on, which then just reduces the overall inventory for that ride for everyone else who doesn't want to spend that money. So, yeah. You know, in, in World, they have experimented with things like... Uh, purchasing extra fast passes if you're concierge level in the hotels. And so I can definitely see them doing that kind of thing in world. Disneyland has a much bigger annual pass holder base that is very vocal and very sensitive to those kind of, you know, perceived attacks on on their status. <laughs> so it'll it'll be interesting to see if they if they experiment <laughs> with that. Yeah. Uh, good good yeah. well I wish I wish them luck with that. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways they're in some ways they're still experimenting with it with these like the Star Wars hotel, right? That is your if you're willing to spend them. Oh yeah, that, exactly. One thing I, I wanted to make sure we touched on because I, I find it really interesting is how how do you do the reviews? There's the restaurant reviews, the hotel reviews, especially at Disneyland. There's so many off property hotels and you mentioned staying at those quite yeah, a bit. There, but, yeah. There's no way that I I just Every time I'm out there, I usually change hotels two or maybe three times during a visit. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll, I'll stay in a hotel for two, two nights or maybe three nights, and then do go to another, and then go to another, and you know constantly try to rotate around. But we also, like I said, we've got Guy Selga who's out there who helps us with research. We also, in this last edition, we we brought in Tom Bricker who runs Disney tourist blogs, and he has stayed in more. Disney uh, Disneyland area hotels than anyone I know. So he's he's uh, contributed his opinions. And we also get a lot of feedback from readers. 
what we've done in uh, recent years. For Walt Disney World, we still have a really large number of people who are kind of going out and doing hotel research. Disneyland, we found that a lot of that was kind of diminishing returns because there are a lot of really kind of mediocre hotels around Disneyland. So what we've kind of curated our hotel information, starting with the 2020 edition, we're giving longer reviews of the hotels for fewer hotels. We're leaving out a lot of the kind of hotel. If there if there's not a really good reason why you would want to stay in a hotel, we still have cheaper hotels, We but we just have the better hotels within their price range. And so we're kind of focusing on, we're not trying to tell you everything about every hotel in Anaheim. We're trying to give you a list of the 20 or 30 that we think are really worth looking into. And, and on the restaurant side, is it, is it as simple as just having you and other folks involved with the book literally going restaurant to restaurant, trying all the food or... Yeah, I mean, uh, Guy has eaten more Disneyland food than <laughs> anyone I know. He's he is definitely a connoisseur, uh, or a connoisseur, especially when it comes to uh, limited time snack items. I do my part every time I'm out there to to try to gain as much weight as possible. You know, everyone has different tastes. Obviously, we have you know some professional restaurant reviewers who remain anonymous who are out in the Anaheim area and they help us with uh, some of the higher end restaurants, the sit down stuff, and we get. Some so much we get a lot of feedback from our readers on quick service food and the things that they like and so we try to to call those out in the book i personally think that disneyland on average has better quick service food than disney world it's there was a to me the high point of, of disneyland food was the uh, hungry bear fried green tomato sandwich when that was introduced god that's that's got to be 7 8 years ago when that was sort of there and then I, I i feel in some ways in the last few years some of the disneyland food has decreased slightly it's still better than disney world i i feel like there's just been a slight diminishment in value value and, and quality, but Disneyland is still a lot of great food. So, okay, let's get into then your tips. So you're you're the Disneyland expert. On the Disneyland side of things, just from your personal opinion, setting aside kind of the, the, the unofficial guide, what are some of your favorite tricks or tips that you've developed kind of visiting the park? You know, I think I mentioned before, I think that Max Pass, if I have one thing that I could tell people is $20 a day, it might seem silly. I've already paid all this money for a ticket. Why do I have to pay an extra 20 bucks? Can't I just walk to the Fast Pass machine? No. Spend the money on Max Pass. It will like make your life so much better because it means that every time that you are waiting in a queue for a ride, you can be scrolling through the Max Pass list and just figuring out whatever's next. And it doesn't eliminate the need for a touring plan because especially in the Disneyland park, there's still a number of attractions that don't offer fast pass. So you have to kind of build your way around that. But when it comes to the e-tickets, I mean, it, our last couple of trips, it almost got comical where we would have so many max passes built up by the end of the day that we would just let them go. Like we have max passes for e-tickets and we'd be like, we've been on that twice already today. You know, we'll, we'll just we'll just skip it. My my biggest tips for maximizing the use of MaxFest, because even if you just buy it and you're just using it to avoid walking to the physical FastPass kiosk, it's great. It's worth it. But a couple things that people don't realize about it. You enter the park, they let you into the park about 30 minutes before the uh, official start time. And, you know, they, they might be holding you in the hub or they might be holding you by Carthay Circle and you can't reach the physical FastPass machine, but you can still use MaxPass right there. So if you got into the park 30 minutes beforehand, 30 minutes before park happening, boom, you've picked up your first MaxPass. Then the second that the park opens, you should be able to pick up your second because if you have one MaxPass, you can't get uh, another until it becomes due or until if you had a traditional fast pass, it's 90 minutes later. But if you have max pass, that's 60 minutes later. So that, that different of 30 minutes, that's right there worth paying the 20 bucks for. But you can sort of double up because if you have a max pass that is uh, comes good less than 30 minutes from when you get it, then you can get another one right at 30 minutes. So if you play your cards right, at DCA, I'll often get into the park at DCA 30 minutes before the park opens. And I've gotten a second max pass right at park open. And with 30 minutes, I've gotten a third one. You've knocked out, you know, you can do Toy Story Mania, Incredicoaster, Guardians of the Galaxy, and have a Radio Springs fast pass all before the park's been open even an hour. And my favorite thing about max pass, if you are staying at a uh, hotel 
that is within walking distance of the park, my favorite tip that predates me in the guide is take a nap, take a nap, take a nap. Um, the, it, it is really tempting to do Disneyland from opening at 8 a.m. until closing at 11 p.m. or midnight. But if you try to do that two days in a row or three days in a row, you're, you're going to hit a wall. There's nothing better than, you know, when the crowds start peaking right after lunch, heading out, taking a nap, coming back a little bit before before sunset. And there's nothing cooler than sitting in your bed in your hotel room across the street from Disneyland and being like, oh, okay, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I'll take one of those. Oh, I wait another 60 minutes. Oh, I'll take a Space Mountain. for, And you can come back to the park and have three or four max passes lined up. And there, there's your whole, whole evening plan. I love these tips. These are awesome. Yeah. And and I, in some in some ways, we follow a lot of these tips on our own trips. We get into the park, we get that first max pass. I usually, I always joke, I rope drop Starbucks and I'm getting my max pass at the same time. <laughs> I wish they had a max pass for Starbucks, by the way, because I would totally get one. But so, so yeah, so we, we, we yeah. And then the the tip that I always give folks is just, you know, Hey Siri, hey whatever, set the alarm on your phone for the the time when you can get the next mass pass, so that it's going off. Yeah, and you're exactly. just getting it right then. Right. The, the idea is you you want to you want to chain those. You want to make sure that you're never le- never letting daylight burn when you could be picking up another fast pass. And I, I talk a little bit in the book. I sort of have a loose theory where in the early morning I try to get the the very quickest fast pass that's available. But then at a certain point, as they start to stretch out, then I'll look for the. St- Stuff that's available really late. Like, you know, you'll see most of the other attractions, uh, your your fast pass availability will be within the next hour or so. But Radiator Springs Racers all of a sudden isn't till mid-afternoon. Well, when I know that I've got a couple other things lined up, I'll grab that Radiator Springs Racers that's not good for another five hours because I know I can pick up, start picking up another one in only an hour. So I know I'll be in a show or whatever, or I'll be eating something. And that by the time I'm done with that, boom, I can get another one. Right. And, and I if love- you wait for Radiator Springs Racers, you might not get it. It might be gone for the day. Exactly. Exactly. You don't want to wait too long, but you also don't want to get it where um, it's going to block you from getting other stuff in the meantime. So especially for something like Raider Springs Racers, where I love picking up one of those for after sunset because I think it's a much better ride after night. Totally uh, agree. Yeah. And the, the flip side of that tip, I pair Max Pass with single rider. This doesn't work so well if you've got kids, but if you're a solo traveler or a couple or you're with a, a bunch of friends and you don't mind splitting up, single rider is uh, one of my favorite things. And I'm sad that I think for the time being, when the parks reopen, single rider will probably go away in favor of social mm-hmm. distancing. But when it comes back, uh, single rider is almost like you know free fast pass. Yeah. Yeah, the, the other tip I'd be curious to get your thoughts on is park hopper at Disneyland. Because I feel like at Disney World, it's it's a calculus. Am I going to actually be park hopping at Disney World? It takes a lot of effort to move between the parks. We've had friends go a lot recently, and I've seen them sort of, oh, do I need the park hopper? Do I not? And I always say, yes, you want the park hopper because you can be max passing across the parks. And the parks are literally like, what, 100, maybe 200 yards from each other. And so it makes a ton of sense at Disneyland to have the, the park hopper. Walt Disney World... Unless you are staying more than five days, because I, I consider Magic Kingdom, if, if you've got kids, Magic Kingdom's a two-day park. If you like alcohol, then Epcot's a two-day park. Uh, <laughs> so either way, you know, if you're at Walt Disney World, I think you can do five days without park hoppers and be just fine. But Disneyland, unless you are only, if you're only doing a one-day visit, we really suggest just do one park and really focus on it just because the price difference of a one day park hopper is so much it's almost worth saving that money and coming back a few few years later and doing the other park and you know just take that one day and really enjoy that one park but if you're staying two or more days yeah i always recommend that park hopper because disneyland doesn't really feel so much like two separate parks it just feels like one one resort do you have any favorite like lore or, you know, stories out of Disneyland that may not, you know, be super well known out the the Disney World? You know, I've I've got a real soft spot for the the park's early history and I love things like the the rocking chairs or, or the chairs on the porch along Main Street, which was originally, I believe, the Wizard of Bras. Believe it or not, there was a <laughs> lingerie store on Main Street. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
Um, and, and, you know, looking up on the, the second floor windows, uh, trying to identify the, the Imagineers and the people who, who helped build the parks who are memorialized on the second floor windows. I got to take the Walk and Walt Footsteps tour at Disneyland, which I know you've done uh, a VIP tour. Uh, Walk and Walt's Footsteps is not a VIP tour in the sense that it's not going to skip you past the rides on all the lines. But if you, if you care about the history, just being able to go up in into the famous apartment over the firehouse um, and seeing the the light that's lit, you know, to, to remember Walt and seeing the furniture that he and his wife picked out. It was a really, really emotional uh, experience that I'd say that and getting to go on the Lily Bell. They I believe they still do tours occasionally where uh, they let guests into the last compartment on the train, which was designed for Walt's wife. And that that was also kind of a really magical experience to sort of be in an environment that's still preserved exactly like it was back then. Yeah, th- those I, I, I kind of really highly recommend those for people who are who are into, you know, not just getting on the rides, but, but wanting to dig a little deeper into the, the history of it. My wife was once asked to come into guests' relations to take some survey, and she was led into some back room for VIPs and they had on the wall the the famous Lost Weekend drawing, the original aerial sketch that was used to convince the bankers to give Walt the money that was, you know, kind of drawn over 24 hours. Oh my God. Uh, They had that, I guess it's somewhere in a back room in guest relations. What do you, what do you think about the direction the park has headed over the years? I mean, you know, Pixar Pier, Cars Land, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. We've got Avengers Campus opening. Is any of that exciting to you or, or I, what's, your, what's your opinion? Okay. Um, th- this is the kind of question that I can annoy people whichever <laughs> way I answer. Um, I have a lot of respect for the Imagineers, for the creative people at Disney. I think they're still doing great work. There's a lot of stuff about Galaxy's Edge I think works. I don't think Galaxy's Edge was the pure home run that they were looking for, but there's a lot about it that I, I really enjoy. And while I think that Marvel Superhero Island and the Spider-Man attraction at uh, Islands of Adventure are going to be really hard to top. I'm I'm excited to see what they've got planned with Adventures for California Adventure. I also like original IPs. I like things that I can only find at Disneyland, and I I like the parts of Disneyland that are still small and intimate and charming and quirky and not you know, just put there for mass consumption or just put there because they move a lot of merchandise. So I hope that whatever new stuff comes in, hey, I, I was very skeptical uh, skeptical about Gardens of the Galaxy coming into Tower of Terror. I still think that uh, Tower of Terror might be the peak of Walt Disney World. You know, that's, that's still top of my list. The California Adventure version of Tower of Terror was never great, but it was still Tower of Terror. And I was very apprehensive when they said they were going to, you know, bring an IP and turn this into uh, Marvel's. I love Gardens of the Galaxy. And my wife, who would very rarely ride Tower of Terror, will ride Gardens of the Galaxy five times a day with me happily. Uh, I think it (laughs) opened it to a bigger demographic. It turned it into something that produced anxiety and tension, which I like anxiety and tension. Uh, I love haunted houses and stuff like that. But it instead it became something that was uplifting and fun and bouncy and makes you laugh and broke it open to a whole different demographic and it really you know it it could have been just a cheap shoehorning just a cheap overlay and instead i think they really captured something about those characters and that franchise and you know brought everything that i really like about those movies into a ride and if they had built it from scratch like that you know i wouldn't I wouldn't be complaining at all. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt until they prove me otherwise. Well, Seth, we're going to head into what we call rapid fire now. So these Uh-oh. are just these are just favorites questions for you, Sam. You want to you want to take uh, okay? But hope I don't get the wrong answers and then have angry mobs with torches, torques. You're the expert. You're the expert, Seth. So you get to set the baseline for all other guests to follow on these questions. Basically, so good. Ooh. All, all opinions are purely my opinion, not necessarily the opinion <laughs> of the unofficial guide and keen communication. Your rights may vary. Your mileage may vary. 
So the first three questions are general Disney favorites, and then the the rest of them are Disneyland specific. So the first one, what is your favorite Disney or Pixar character? Oh, Wally. Oh, that's a good one. That's a great one. Yeah. Okay. What's your favorite Disney or Pixar movie? I'm going to go with Little Mermaid. Oh, I love Little Mermaid. <laughs> what is your favorite Disney song? In the tiki 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 room. <laughs> yes. In the tiki room. <laughs> I just, I just, I just took delivery of a of a replica tiki room sign to hang yeah, up. So, it just came you know. to our house like two days ago. <laughs> okay, so these the rest the rest are Disneyland focused. What's your favorite Disneyland resort area uh, resort? Actually, so it doesn't have to be a Disneyland one. It could just be one of the the other ones in Anaheim. But what's your favorite resort? Oh, you mean hotel? Hotel, sorry, hotel. Oh, there's, I mean, there's, there's, I'm going to go with the Disneyland hotel. I don't think, and honestly, every, every hotel around there has its pluses and its minuses. And I don't think that there's a, a perfect hotel. Like at Disney World, I could just tell you Animal Kingdom Lodge, easy, mm-hmm. um, or Polynesian. Um, and I could argue between the two of them. But, but like, I mostly stay at Paradise Pier. I'm not going to tell you Paradise Pier is the best hotel. I'm going to go with Disneyland Hotel for one reason, one reason only, and that's Trader Sam's. Ah, that's Next question. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> All right. California Adventure versus Disneyland Park. <sighs> I, I'm, I got to go with Disneyland. I mean, I can't. Uh, my my wife would probably go with California Adventure, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say Disneyland Park. Okay, favorite classic ride or attraction in the Disneyland parks? Pirates. Favorite modern ride or attraction in the Disneyland parks? What what year do we consider modern? You get to define it however you want. Yeah, that's a good call, Brian. Okay. Well, I personally would say that the modern era of Imagineering started with Star Tours in '87. <laughs> so I will say Indiana Jones Adventure. Oh, that's a good one. I like that ride. Okay, favorite Disneyland resort snack. I love the um corn on the cob with the lime chili. Mm. hmm Yeah, that's a good one. Favorite Disneyland resort drink. Could be alcoholic or non-alcoholic. Oh, honestly, any good red wine, as long as it's on the alfresco terrace. And and honestly, like I'm going to have to renew my annual pass just so I can keep visiting there now that it's uh, an AP lounge only. A favorite Disneyland resort quick service restaurant. Oh, it used to be Hungry Bear, but I'm not crazy about their current menu does french market count as quick service it's sort of hybrid because it's yeah. like that that count yeah i would say I that's would quick say service the, I'd, say the, I'd say the french market then okay and then favorite disneyland resort sit down restaurant and this could it doesn't have to be fancy but any kind mm. of sit down mm. i gotta go with carthay circle it's it's disappointed me on one or two occasions. It's it's sometimes inconsistent, mm-hmm. but when they're good, they're so good. And those duck wings. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, Seth, it has been just great talking to you tonight, and we've really enjoyed having you on. You're such a wealth of knowledge. We'll we'll have to have you back at some point for more questions because I have I have so many. When the world comes back and we are all going to theme parks again and and have have that to talk about, I will happily come back and we'll chat about the 2021 edition of our unofficial guide. That sounds awesome. There you go. How how can people find you, Seth, if they're interested in sort of providing feedback to you and the unofficial guide folks? Yeah. So our website, which is kind of the hub of all our information, is theunofficialguides.com. And on Twitter, it's the UG series. We've got a YouTube channel. We've got Facebook that you can subscribe to. And you can find links to email me there. Thanks again, Seth, for coming on. It's just been great having you on this evening. and, And thanks for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. Take care of yourselves. Stay stay safe. Well, I hope you had as much fun listening to Seth as we did talking to him. He's such a wealth of knowledge about Disneyland, and it was really fun to learn how he puts together the unofficial guide each year. Just a lot of great background there. 
As a quick reminder, we're actually going to give away a copy of the Disneyland unofficial guide to a lucky listener. All you have to do to enter to win is head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star written review. And at the end of the month, we'll draw the name of one lucky listener who's left us a five-star written review over on Apple Podcasts and send them out a copy of Seth's uh, unofficial guide to Disneyland. So it's a great prize. And now you'll know a lot of the backstory about how the guide's put together. Just a quick reminder that we're doing the Quarantine Key 5K virtual run on Memorial Day weekend this year, and we're sponsoring that run with a lot of other great podcasts and vlogs out in the community, including the DCL podcast, Disney Deciphered, Podcast Stardust, Rope Drop Radio, and the Mouse Gen vlog. If you haven't had a chance, we've got an episode up on how you can participate in the Quarantine Key 5K, but just real fast for everyone out there, you can participate by running, walking, crawling, whatever you want to do, a 5K over Memorial Day weekend. Post up a picture uh, to our Facebook page or to Twitter or Instagram and tag us uh, in the photo and use the hashtag Quarantine Key 5K, quarantine spelled with a C. If you do all of that, we're going to enter folks who participate in a little drawing to win some DCL Duo swag and a Disney-related prize that we're still kind of putting together. In addition, you can head over to dclduo.com and buy a Quarantine Key 5K t-shirt. All the proceeds from the t-shirt sales are going to go to Give Kids the World, and we're going to match up to $500 in profits off the t-shirts towards that donation to Give Kids the World. So it'll make a great souvenir of the race and uh, donates to a good cause. We also want to make sure to read a, our five-star reviews this week from Apple Podcasts on the uh, on the show. And our review this week comes from Era WSON1, titled, Just Started Listening. Really enjoy the content. I mean, who doesn't love Disney? But what makes it better are the hosts. Their love of Disney shines in a fun and organized way. The Wolf of Disney. Thanks, Wolf of Disney. Uh, that's coming from a reviewer who's got a new podcast as well called The Wolf of Disney. So feel free to go over and check that podcast out. So thank Thanks again, everyone, for listening this week. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you can keep getting great content from the DCL Duo each week. Please also leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are helpful in making the podcast more visible and enable us to get more great Disney guests on the show like Seth. If you'd like to send us a question or be a guest on the show, please email us at dclduo at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media at dclduo. You can also head over to the DCL Duo channel on YouTube for even more great content. The DCL Duo podcast and vlog are not affiliated with Disney Cruise Line, the Walt Disney Company, or the Walt Disney Family of Theme Parks. The views expressed on this show are solely those of the individuals on the podcast and in no way reflect the views of the Walt Disney Company or Disney Cruise Line. If you have questions about a Disney cruise or a Walt Disney vacation, please contact Disney directly or your own travel agent. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time for another fabulous Disney adventure with the DCL Duo. Good night. Thank you.